The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator, Paragraph 7. Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Well, boys and girls, I want to welcome you today to this episode of the This We Confess podcast, and I trust that you've got your listening ears on today, because this paragraph is incredibly difficult. Even as I have just read it to begin the podcast today, perhaps you're in the car or lying on a mat stretching your wee body or doing whatever it is you're up to, and you're wondering what on earth is paragraph 7 all about. Well, as a little helpful reminder, we go back to paragraph 2 of chapter 8. It tells us that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very an eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Hopefully some of that rings a few bells. We spoke of that paragraph way before the summer and we talked about what we call the hypostatic union. And so as Reformed Christians, we believe that Jesus took on flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in the fullness of time, took upon himself man's nature. And that nature came with all the essential properties and common infirmities, and yet was without sin. And so Jesus, when we consider our Saviour, is fully God and fully man, yet without sin. Jesus is one person with two natures. And so we must stress that the divine nature does not convert the human nature. The human nature does not confuse the divine. The two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. 
Forgive me, my friends, if I'm repeating myself here and if you've already knocked these truths out of the park, but perhaps they bear repeating. They are not easy truths. And yet as we reach this paragraph, as difficult as it might be, it is worth spending some time reflecting on these things. And so we begin by stressing here in paragraph 7 that it is Christ, both God and man, who saves us. Chad Van Dixhorn puts it this way, It is not the human nature of Christ that saves us, nor is it the divine nature of Christ that saves us. No, it is Christ himself acting according to both natures, who is our saviour and deliverer. The confession, says Van Dixhorn, aims to stress this point when it tells us that each nature of Christ was doing that which is proper to itself. We have been saved by Christ, a whole person. Indeed, he has two natures without conversion, composition or confusion. But Christ, the whole person, the Son of God, was the one who saved us. The Westminster Divines give us two passages to think on that. The first is Hebrews 9 and verse 14, where we're told that the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here, the apostle does not make any distinction between the divine nature and the human. Instead, he writes that the blood of Christ, the whole Christ, the one Christ, both human and divine, it is his blood that is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here, Peter does not distinguish between the human and divine nature of Christ. He simply states that it is Christ who suffered as the righteous one for the unrighteous. And so it is in this fashion that the Westminster Divines write that Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. It is Jesus who works, human and divine. It is Christ who dies. It is Christ who saves us and redeems our lives from the pit. But the next part of this paragraph starts with one little word, yet, and it is a very important section that we will now consider. Neither Hebrews 9 nor 1 Peter 3 distinguishes between the divine and the human natures of Christ. They speak simply of Christ's blood and Christ's suffering, speaking of the whole Christ. And this points us to a wonderful truth, that what can be said of either nature of Jesus is true of the person. We can speak of both his divine nature and his human nature, and it is true of the person of Christ. And yet there are times in Scripture where we must distinguish between the natures of Christ without falling into the trap of separating them. We must remember that we have already heard in paragraph 2 of this chapter that the two natures of Christ are inseparably joint. And yet it is true to say that it is Christ's human nature who learns how to speak, who learns how to walk, who gets hungry, who gets tired, who goes through all of those same emotions as you and I. And in the same fashion, it is Christ's divine nature who doesn't need to do any of these things. Christ, who is fully God, 
does not need to learn how to speak. He is the one who invented language. Christ, who is fully God, does not need to worry about where his next meal is coming from. God does not require food or drink or water or sleep. And so when we read through the scriptures, we need to distinguish between the divine and the human nature at times without separating them. For example, Christ's obedience to the law of God is worked in his human nature. Christ the man is the one who keeps the law perfectly on our behalf. He is, after all, the second Adam. And at this point, you perhaps might think that the Westminster divines are being a little bit pedantic. Why take time and write a paragraph like this? It seems overly complicated and there's absolutely no point in doing it. But my friends, if that is your consideration today, I would urge you to take a step back. Sometimes I think we speak so lightly of Christ. We're used to speaking of him often and freely and openly and that is a wonderful thing. Please don't see that as a criticism. I just think at times it is good to stop and to reflect fully on who it is we trust and who it is we worship and adore, to take a bigger view of Jesus and to marvel at his feet. Whilst what can be said of either nature of Jesus is true of the person, what can be said of either nature is not true of the other nature. For example, the human nature of Christ didn't exist throughout eternity, and the divine nature of Christ didn't die at Calvary. Again, if this seems pedantic, let's take a scriptural example. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 32, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And in a passage like this, we as Christians are left scratching our head. And yet this is a perfect example of our Lord Jesus who is fully God and fully man, without sin, and yet neither nature converted the other. There was no composition or confusion when the two natures of Christ were inseparably joined together. And so in this passage we see that the divine nature does not convert the human nature. The human nature of Jesus does not know everything. He does not know the day or the hour. And so here we do not see Jesus telling a lie and we do not see a contradiction in scripture, but we see a point in scripture where we should stop and pause and reflect on the hypostatic union and marvel at the mysteries therein and rejoice in our Savior. The divine nature of Christ knows all things. The human nature of Christ does not. And yet Chad Van Dixhorn is helpful again here. He says that something that is only true of Christ's human nature, say his dying on the cross, may in scripture be attributed to Christ by reference to his divine nature. Chad Van Dixhorn puts it in even simpler terms. He says, sometimes the humanity of Christ is expressed using divine categories, and sometimes the divinity is expressed in human categories. What does he mean? Well, the Westminster Divines give us various scriptural examples. Acts 20 and verse 28 states, Paul said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, we know that the Lord God Almighty is spirit. God does not have blood. And yet Paul rightly speaks of God, obtaining his bride 
by his own blood. The divinity is expressed in a human category. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, we see this again. By this we know love, writes John, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now we know, of course, that God is spirit, God is eternal, God cannot die, and yet John rightly speaks that God laid down his life for us. The divine is expressed in a human category. And it works the other way round as well. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 3 and verse 13, we read, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, of course, it wasn't the Son of Man who descended from heaven. It was the Son of God. He descended and took on flesh. The Son of God descended and became the Son of Man. And yet, John here, recording the words of Jesus, does not lie. The Lord Jesus rightly speaks of the Son of Man descending from heaven. The humanity of Christ is expressed here using a divine category. And so it is this that the Westminster divines mean when they say that by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And so today, as we finish, you might be left thinking, Scott, what is this all about? It seems so hard, it seems so difficult, and despite your best efforts, I still don't think I understand it. My friends, perhaps you're not alone. There are days when I read a paragraph like this, and I think I get it, and then there are other days I read it, and it seems so obscure and so vague that I skip quickly over to something else that I enjoy a little bit better. And yet I think for me the big point in this paragraph is something that I need to reflect on more. And it is simply this. How often when we think of Christ do we really think of Christ? How often when we're reading of Christ do we really read of Christ? How often do we simply just stop and marvel at our Saviour? I remember once visiting the Grand Canyon in the United States of America. And the scale and the magnificence and the beauty of it literally took my breath away. I stood for minutes just gazing at it, watching it, looking at it, trying to make sense of this outstanding beauty before me. When I read this paragraph, I read it in that spirit. I read it, yes, as a difficult paragraph which points us to the hypostatic union and the two inseparably joined yet distinct natures of Christ. I read all of these things, all of these technical terms, and before I get carried away and before I reach for the medicine for my sore head, I stop. And I take time to gaze at the beauty of Christ. I pause and I think again on what was accomplished. We are so familiar with the stories of Jesus, aren't we? That often the words that God has, by his grace, put on a page can just trip off our tongues or wind their way through our minds without ever stopping to stick. This paragraph reminds me to stop and to marvel at the Son of God the second person of the Trinity, who, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, 
did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparately joined together in one person, without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? My friends, here is our Jesus. Here is our Savior. Today, may we adore him. Five questions for you to consider. Question one. What do we mean when we speak of the hypostatic union? Question two. Is it true that Christ's divine nature converted his human nature and made it better? Question three. Explain why Mark chapter 13 and verse 32 shows us the two inseparably joined and yet distinct natures of Christ. Question 4. Give an example of divinity expressed in humanity. And question 5. Give an example of humanity expressed in divinity. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. <laughs> <laughs>